0: Okay. Expedition. Yeah. And when we got there, of course, we introduced our own chicken recipe, and they had a revolt, and we had to go back to what they've been using. <laughs> Don't mess with people's chicken. They like
1: how it is. That's how
0: they know. The <laughs> Not in the South. Don't mess with their fried chicken.
2: This is um, uh, on the uh, on the messing with uh, fried chicken front. Um, One of the weirdest moments in American politics in the 1990s was um, the uh, Oakland uh, special election in the California Legislative Assembly um, in the mid-90s, which which produced the unlikely event of the first green member of a state legislature being elected. Uh, The reason that Audie Bach became the first uh, green state legislator in America, um, you know, two decades before anybody else pulled this off, um, was that uh, Oakland was a, um, and remains one of the safest democratic seats in the California state legislature. But this was prior to the major Afghani migration of the early 21st century, So it was a district that was, um, uh, over 50%, um, uh, Hispanic and black and, uh, the African-American constituency comprised the, the largest portion of, uh, the, uh, of Oakland voters. Uh, anyway the uh, Democrats had this insurgent green candidate running against some who had considerable support in the Hispanic community. And unlike the Democratic candidate was bilingual. So um, the Democrats countered with this brilliant plan for turning out their vote. If you showed up at a Democratic Party campaign office with a ballot receipt showing that you had voted they would give you a free small bucket of fried chicken. Oh. Um, so uh, that's,
0: that's, how, uh,
2: yeah, so that, that's how, yeah, so that's <laughs> how tens of thousands of black people refused to vote for the Democrats and uh, the uh, Greens got into the legislature on a three, three-way plurality. So yes there's, there's powerful political and economic forces at work when we're messing with people's chicken. Uh, in fact, you know, the, the iconic moment, um, that, uh, uh, really in uh, an iconic moment in the economic history of the 20th century, um, was something that I learned about, um, at the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum. Um, so, there's a Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum in Salt Lake City. Uh, because I got food um, there. pardon me?
1: I got food poisoning there.
2: That doesn't surprise me. i uh, I think I may have had a near miss myself. Anyway, that is the original branch of KFC. Colonel Sanders was just a crazy person cooking in a gas station parking lot until a Mormon family went on vacation and found him at the side of a secondary road um, trying to um, sell his patented pressure fried chicken recipe. Now, the chicken was very good and he did a brisk business out of the gas station parking lot and so good that the governor of Kentucky used a special power only Kentucky governors have, which is to make you a Kentucky colonel. What are the powers of a Kentucky colonel? Absolutely none. It's not a military rank. You just get to call yourself a Kentucky colonel. So um, anyway, uh, the Kentucky Fried Chicken Museum features uh, many of the colonel's suits in glass cases and a number of very important commemorative photographs, most important of which I remember from my own newspaper indicating the quote's opening of China under Deng Xiaoping. And it's Colonel Sanders, Ding, and um, and uh, and the the Mormon dude who started the the chain, um, standing in Tiananmen Square, each biting into a drumstick, and uh, it's like this is this is the moment. We're six years before the massacre, um, and uh, there's just uh, these guys eating the fried chicken. Um, Colonel Sanders' other great achievement that affects us politically is um, he was uh, George Wallace's second choice for vice presidential candidate. Um, Curtis Lemay ended up being chosen, but um, the colonel's uh, long-term flirtation with running on a segregationist ticket is one of the reasons that Church's Fried Chicken got going as an alternative chain to serve black uh, to serve black neighborhoods that were boycotting the colonel uh, in the early uh, 1970s. Anyway. Um, in Kentucky, there's
0: a rival, General Lee's, believe it or not, General Lee's Chicken. Oh. That rivals for, I know, to, to fight against, and they are predominantly in the black neighborhoods in Lexington and Louisville.
2: Well, I guess that's an interesting strategy. It's like, let's find a more segregationist name to oppose segregation with. That's um, that's the 3D Chess of America. Um, Okay, folks, uh, welcome back. Um, I guess I'll hear in the recording what your chicken story was, but but what, what, what happened? What did I come in in the middle of with the chicken conflict?
0: I, I was explaining just what I do for a living.
2: That, that's all. And
0: and one of the things I do for a li- used to do is travel around the country, and open new accounts. And there was this account where we tried to change the chicken recipe, and the it's where the entire community came for Sunday dinner after church oh, in a wow. rural hospital in South Carolina. So there was a revolt because we, we do things the way we, I work for a company. We, everything we do is by scratch. So we hand bread and hand season and lo and behold, they want their local brand of seasoning and breading. And so, yeah, that's what started that.
2: Okay. So, um, now I talked, uh, we talked a fair bit last time about, um, state magic, um, and uh, some of the uh, some of the problems uh, we associate um, with um, the rise of the wealth of the Arab world not um, being commensurate with an increase in the level of what we call the development of the Arab world. Um, a related element of this is another phenomenon that uh, that again is um, coming from uh, this part of the North American continent, uh, we have some special purchase on. And I think last class I gave short shrift to what we call rentierism. Um, but uh, rentierism is considered to be another reason uh, that states experience under development, right? And I'd already talked about this a bit with the 18th century Spanish Empire that it understood that that its main source of wealth was gold and silver from the new world and this led to deindustrialization inflation and poverty because um none of the wealth was being rooted through um productive industry domestically and uh One of the ways you can tell if a state is a rentier state, one of the biggest cultural contrasts you can find between a place like British Columbia and parts south or parts east of us is how we um, have traditionally thought about migrants. Uh, So in rentier societies that draw most of their wealth from what we call natural capital in the form of rent by pumping oil or um, uh, mining gold or the like, Um, the uh, natural capital is finite, right? It's finite and its existence um, and and its value has almost nothing to do with the amount of labor put into it, Uh, unprocessed materials that are simply good and require little processing cause societies to think differently about the uh, about the use of labor. In a rentier society, people believe that if you admit new immigrants, it will make society poorer because there is a finite amount of wealth and the number of people it is being divided among is increasing. Um, and this certainly shapes. Uh, the British Columbia I grew up in uh, over many generations. Whenever British Columbia experienced um, an economic downturn, um, it would immediately manifest in anti-immigrant racism uh, in in a highly organized way. People don't remember that a lot of the Tea Party in the United States was modeled on a Canadian political movement from the 90s called the Reform Party of Canada that had massive anti-immigrant rallies in all of our major cities in the West. But the Reform Party could only ever win one seat in Ontario because Ontarians could see no logic, no economic logic to the Reform Party's beliefs about migrants. Ontarians might like to underpay migrants and have built all kinds of labor systems to do that created temporary foreign worker visas, created the nanny visa, done all kinds of things to reduce the pay of migrants. But the belief always was the more people you had in the country, the more stuff you could build, the more stuff you could mark up and the more stuff you could sell. And that that was what produced prosperity. Um, In um, Yes, Ontario created Brampton, exactly. um, so, uh, so the logic of sort of, we're going to become prosperous by locking the door and throwing away the key can't sell in places with a strong manufacturing base. It can't sell in places with developed economies. Um, what we see in, uh, and so, You end up with what's called a kind of, I mean, there there comes to be a kind of rentier culture where people in societies that don't believe their labor is creating value, but believe that they're in on some kind of scam with other people to pull value out of thin air, um, you tend to get disinvestment in infrastructure because... Um, so much of what justifies our building of roads and railways and the like is the belief, is the business community using this as a hidden subsidy to move their goods. Um, but when the business community doesn't believe in that hidden subsidy, it becomes a problem. A lot of the absurdity of pipeline politics in Western Canada is a microcosm of the illogic of, of, uh, of rentier economies. So in Alberta and British Columbia, companies that would make more money by contributing to the maintenance and upgrading of infrastructure, like our railroads, will just refuse to, even though it strands the thing they're trying to sell. Um, because th- there's just this... Um, this visceral problem with investing um, within a state. Now, this rentier psychology is pre-existing, and really, and it's associated in part with questions of dependency, which we've talked about before. Uh, it sometimes intersects with questions of state magic. Um, it also intersects with what we call the resource curse, Where uh, that Spain suffered from in the 18th century, where nobody's spending money went up, but the amount of money in the economy went up, so there was inflation and people could no longer afford the goods goods that they had formerly purchased. Um, There's an article that I've packaged for you guys. If there's any article you wanna look at from the sort of middle period, the piece on Equatorial Guinea is just a great case of the resource curse, where the discovery of oil absolutely flattened the economy and plunged the people into abject poverty. Um, Another feature is that when you don't have industry investing, it's not just that they're not hiring labor, not upgrading infrastructure, the other thing they don't do is um, invest in training. And so another feature of rentier economies is that although they dislike migrants, they tend to headhunt highly qualified educated migrants from elsewhere to run systems they will not invest in training their own people to run. Uh, and so one is up against all of these business culture problems in a rentier economy. It's one of the reasons that... Um, Calgary, Edmonton, and Vancouver are vastly underrepresented in terms of head offices of companies because the business culture in rentier economies tends to be spiteful and wasteful. Uh, And uh, now one can do certain things about that. It's not exactly that it's a democratic thing, that the society as a whole is spiteful or wasteful or even that the business elite is the main power group in a government. Um, so now we get to the middle. Um, so in the first part of the Cold War, we see this rise of um, the, uh, oh Rebecca, I, I'm sorry, long I, I don't get the reference, Longwall,
1: Uh, There were some uh, coal mine opened in British Columbia and maybe five years ago, eight years ago. Um, And it was a big controversy because they brought in all these Chinese foreign workers to do this kind of specialized long wall coal mining um, with the promise that they would train other people in Canada to do this work. And they never did. And now it's just essentially a coal mine operated by and for the Chinese. I don't remember what the mine's called, though.
2: No, that that makes total sense. But in fact, right i mean as we talked about with dependency and the fast ferries um in a way that's a hollow promise everyone has agreed won't be fulfilled uh that um, that the investment in um the investment in uh training workers here is a pretty it's a pretty thin one so um zooming back there's a reason i had to set up some of the unique challenges experienced in the Arab world um, before getting into today's lecture. I'm gonna go over just one or two other challenges and then I'll leap into the big picture of the early Cold War. One other major thing to consider um, has to do with experiences of um, state formation. So many, uh, so there's a concentration of oil wealth um, in the least populous, smallest uh, countries in uh, the Middle East and in, uh, and in East Asia. And this is uh, to a degree a historical accident To a degree, it piggybacks a pre-existing cultural tendency. So, like pretty much everywhere in the world, borders were drawn in a historically contingent, arbitrary, and bizarre way. But there is a particular thing about the borders in... Um, The Straits Leaving and Entering the Indian Ocean. Uh, We have to remember that, right, India was the biggest source of wealth on Earth um, after the Chinese middle class began to collapse. So beginning in the mid-19th century, we have the Indian Mutiny and we have the rise of the British Raj. And uh, PBS did that very long drama series about it entitled jewel in the crown back in the 80s the title empress or emperor had never been applied to a british monarch until the british raj so although there was a british empire it was ruled by someone who was the queen of england scotland and ireland the uh, queen of the dominions etc um The titles emperor and empress were created specifically to express the grandeur of India. So one of the other things the British then needed to do was to have secure routes to and from India. This meant, of course, seizing control of Egypt and constructing the Suez Canal. Um, And of course, the British held Gibraltar, which controlled the entry and exit to the Mediterranean, The Suez controlled the entry and exit to the Red Sea. Um, Aden, uh, now South Yemen, controlled uh, the uh, other, uh, the entry and exit to the Indian Ocean from the West. Um, There were also all of these little states that had engaged in piracy and what, and also just were potential other sources of power. The Omani Empire was around. The British smashed it in 1859. Um, and the British, as they were, as they looked in a more and more sophisticated way at their extractive system, they realized that there were all kinds of places where they needed to maintain military supremacy, where in fact it would be a disadvantage to directly rule them where if um, the British turned something into a colony, there'd be a set of expectations of them as an empire to govern that colony, to see certain kinds of laws enforced there, to maintain ports and things like that. And so, um, even before the British Raj, um, the British had developed what they called the Trucial system, where Technically, they had a truce with all of these emirates. And what this meant was, um, there was, it was not even a treaty, they weren't allies. There was just an agreement that they would not attack anything British. And In exchange for the agreement, the British seated two advisors in the court of the emir. Uh, now, emirs, princes, didn't rule big things, Um, but, you know, numerically significant. So the point was to ensure stability and to prevent any kind of threat to British merchant sailing. And we see the opposite sort of thing on the other side. There are the British in Malaysia. There are the British in Brunei. Uh, And uh, there they are in Singapore, dealing with the other exit to the Indian Ocean. So their concern was not one of rule or extraction, but of stability. And what that meant was that in these regions, whereas There were lots of civil wars within Emirates, lots of Emirates appearing and disappearing, lots of um, different families taking over control of the crown in those places. The British made it very clear that that was not to be tolerated. And so in the game of musical chairs that was the Emirates of Indonesia and uh, the Persian Gulf, one day the music stopped and the people who happened to be sitting down suddenly had the force of the British Navy behind them to make themselves the permanent rulers of that place, a royal family that could not be deposed. So this caused significant ossification, significant ossification of these systems that had previously been fairly volatile. they uh and the other thing was that the often the emirs did not under did not th- i mean this is as nationalism is coming into being in Europe, there's no consciousness of it in these regions, and given that so many of the people of the Arabian Peninsula um were non sedentary or semi sedentary peoples, what this meant was that the families that the emirs family liked became citizens and the other families became stateless. So, there's an important thing to recognize about um, modern Israel, is that the main thing Israel is doing is becoming less exceptional. Um, It's becoming more like a proper Middle Eastern country all the time. Um, The idea that over half of your residents are citizens of nowhere uh, and essentially a rightless labor force um, is an innovation that Kuwait and Qatar and Saudi Arabia picked up centuries ago uh Israel's just catching up and um this um uh so needless to say, looking at these sort of conservative monarchies of Uh, the Indian Rim, Uh, this was not where anyone expected the most significant challenge uh, against the Cold War order to come from. Uh, Nor did these uh, countries particularly present themselves as that challenge. The big challenges that came, uh, that appeared to present themselves um, against this... um, US-Soviet consensus about how to divide up the former colonies of the great European empires, um, these challengers presented themselves early. Um, in, with the independence of India, um, Jawaro Nehru began to present himself and his new country as an alternative that would not follow the path of the United States or the Soviet Union. Um, Having once been one of the greatest empires in the world, having an enormous educated middle class, um, having a sophisticated literate society going back thousands of years, Um, and with extraordinary experience in governance, because we need to remember that much of the Indian middle class, like Mahatma Gandhi, were sent to East Africa to govern British colonies for the British. So this is a class that has a global optic, an understanding of empire, an understanding of context. And very early we see, India emerging as a key seedbed of ideas resisting um, this uh, US-Soviet duopoly. Uh, Now Nehru's one of the first global leaders to appear in this way. Um, Following the rise of Nikita Khrushchev in uh, following the death of Stalin We see the beginnings of the Sino-Soviet split, and we see um, China presenting itself in the same way. Now, there are two—I don't want us to get too hung up on which organization started when, who led which organization, who was in which coalition. But there are two terms generally for the movement that we're talking about. One is the non-aligned movement. It exists up to the present day. It still has members. But it was a function of new countries coming into being and joining other decolonizing states and saying, we won't pick a lane here. We won't go with the US or the Soviet Union. We're interested in our independent development, our ideas, our ways of being. Um, The more common term, um, that was coined by, uh, Nehru and company is the third world. Um, this was not a term that referred to poverty or wealth originally. The idea was the United States and its allies were the first world, the Soviet Union and their allies were the second world. And there was a third world that was coming into being, um, This is a major subject of the Bandung Conference in Indonesia in 1954, where we see these movements really taking off, and as decolonization ramps up, and these big new states come into being. Now, one might ask, how did Third World come to mean what it does? Well, tell you the uh, story of uh, uh, words in my family. So uh, my, uh, my uncle Barton um, was, um, uh, suffered serious brain damage when he was eight years old, and his mother attacked him with a cast iron frying pan, um, and uh, was consequently uh, institutionalized until uh, his uh, early 40s. Uh, under fairly brutal conditions. Uh, now, my Uncle Barton um, was very proud of being referred to as retarded because people had called him stupid, had called him an idiot. And um, and, and during the 1960s and 70s and 80s, um, Mentally disabled people fought to have the term retarded applied to them because it had no pre-existing negative associations. And of course it developed these associations and so then people moved to having the term challenged applied and of course it has now developed those associations. The word moron entered our language as a neologism in the 19th century to refer to mentally disabled people in a non-stigmatizing, non-insulting way. But the point is that um, if you don't like people who aren't very smart, then whatever you call them is going to become an insult. Um, And, uh, you know, the same was true of my... uh, my my grandfather, he, um, uh, he was an NAACP member, but in the 1930s, he fought to be referred to as a Negro rather than a colored man because colored had taken on negative associations. When my mother decided uh, to refer to herself as black, my grandfather was aghast because um, This was a term that already had negative associations. And it's interesting how when, and this is why we see this turn in the 90s of people trying to appropriate the word nigger. It's the idea that it turns out if you appropriate something that's already an insult, you have a better chance of it not being stigmatizing than if you create a neutral word if you redeploy a neutral word or come up with a, a neologism, that um, it uh, so the big problem with the idea of the third world is that the this that things is that people observe the third world and their associations with those places stuck to the term, and so of course we think of the third world as non-white and poor. Ah. Uh, in, um, you know, people have uh, tried to use the term global south and it's largely produced the same outcomes. Um, there is a sense of judgment in the term third world, but it's the third world, but the third world movement, one of the things we've lost in our efforts to get away from the term are the other important things that third world is a meant. So, The doctrine of the Chinese Communist Party, right, is the doctrine of Marxism-Leninism with Chinese characteristics. One of the interesting, there are one of the, there are sort of two countervailing ideas about nationalism that are wrapped up in third worldism. Um, On the one hand, there's this argument that no, our history matters, the history that people used to describe capitalism is a history of Europe and of how Europe developed. People who were capitalist modernizers went, well, Europe's the template, history is played out there, we're trying to catch up with it. Uh, Marxists made largely the same arguments, right? They just differed on how the timeline was going to end. But in both cases, there was this linear theory Um, and this sense that all history everywhere is essentially the same and will unfold essentially the same way. This is something that third worldism rejected. The um, The argument was, look, the reason we are less prosperous than you is partly because we are being exploited and partly because the institution's that are being built in our countries are not being built with reference to our history and culture. And there there are some classic examples of this. This is when post-colonial literature becomes a thing. One of the things that, um, an argument that uh, people in this movement would make is, every child in the British Empire has to learn Wordsworth's daffodils poem, whether their country contains any daffodils. Ah. how much can you know about poetry? Uh, Here we have some nature poetry when it's not even describing the nature you can see. Uh, And so what third worldism sought to do was look into the past of these places and to find institutions that were like what they wanted to build in the present that could be elaborated into the present. And one of the exemplary places, and this goes back to our, um, uh, an, an earlier lecture was Mexico. Mexico's land reform policies were successful because the ejido was based on a form of land holding developed um, in the 16th century based on land, holding patterns from the 13th century, that the ejido as an institutional formation stretched back to long before the Mexican state and even before colonization. So the idea was, well, look at the Mexicans. They're producing high levels of self-sufficiency. They have these new agricultural co-ops that really are producing and alleviating poverty. This is an example of how you build a third world kind of socialism or a third world kind of capitalism. Um, this go, I've already mentioned the next feature we tend to see in the economics of the third world movement, self-sufficiency, right? A lot of these countries are decolonizing, whether formally or informally. They have all been part of the periphery. Uh, European empires in the United States have been extracting their resources. People have been working on farms and shipping whatever they produced offshore via rail lines they can't even travel down. Uh, And so the thing was, no, 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 let's meet our needs here first. What we want is to, um, we don't want to import food. What we want to do is see what we can get out of our own resources. So let's turn our economies more inward. Um, A related feature of this is a common economic strategy in the third world movement called villagization. The sense is that one of the real through lines in lots of societies is that most societies have at one time or another been village based have centered their, um, uh, their society on the village, not on the city, but on the village. Um, India really led the way on villagization because they were having to do all kinds of affirmative action to alleviate the effects of the caste system. But because the caste system had never, ever been encoded in law, there, was no, there were no documents as to what people's castes were. The only way you found out someone's caste was to go to the village their family was from. Even if their family had been living in the city for three generations, the knowledge of the family, the old relatives, all the support systems rooted through the village. And so you went, well, we could do what the Soviet Union did and smash the village, or we can make the village large and democratic and interesting. So the food subsidy programs came to be administered at the village level. The affirmative action programs came to be administered at the village level. And more and more governance functions moved down and decentralized into the villages. Um, So we associate with third worldism um, this interest in history and culture these villagization processes, this rejection of either the Soviet or the American model. Uh, another feature we associate with the third world movement is what we call, might call meta nationalism. So nationalism they saw as something that was bad and European because it pulled people apart. And the way the Europeans had drawn borders in Africa um, made any kind of nationalism extremely dangerous because nations had nothing to do with borders. You know, there were, um, you know, 8 million Shona in Zimbabwe and 3 million in Mozambique. Uh, The Kikuyu were 40% of Kenya, uh, but not 50%. all kinds of nations had been divided and imprisoned within countries whose boundaries had no real logic to them. Uh, and so there was this great fear of a parochial nationalism because they saw what th- that had done elsewhere in the world. Uh, you know, The Armenian genocide in Turkey, all of these sorts of things. The, um, uh, the European history of war. Um, and I, I remember this spirit was still really strong uh, when I, I visited Zimbabwe in 1992, and it was an amazing time to be there because the South African apartheid referendum was happening while I was in the country. I've never seen a newspaper lineup that was longer in my whole life. Everybody waiting to see whether the country to their south was gonna descend into civil war and millions of people were gonna head for their border. Um, Anyway, the uh, uh, but also what was going on at that time was the beginning of the Yugoslav civil war. And I still remember the Harare Herald's headline. Um, It said, tribal violence erupts in Yugoslavia. Because of course, they're so African people with a British education. Tribes contain millions of people. Um, it, uh, uh, you know, if, I mean, for God's sake, there are only 1.3 million Slovenes. If 20 million Kenyans are a tribe, then these Slovenes sure as shit are. Um, so uh, there's this sense, right? This real stigma of what we might think of as cultural historical nationalism, because it wasn't just understood to be European, it was also, it had been drilled into people by Europeans that it was primitive. And so rather than saying nationalism is a terrible thing, these sort of um, theoretical meta nationalisms were created, in particular African nationalism this idea that the, all of the peoples of sub-Saharan Africa have these fundamental commonalities that overwhelm all of their many differences, that African nationalism is an alternative to Kikuyu nationalism, it's an alternative to Bantu nationalism, it's, um, it's a way of draining all of the tribalism out of nationalism. And so... Many of the parties and movements associated with third worldism subscribe to that. You also had this in the Arab world in a different way where people are saying, look, we do all have one language. We do all have one history and we do have a set of um, three major interlocking religious traditions. Um, We should, maybe we should uh, undo this in a different way. And so you saw Gamal Abdel Nasser's efforts to create something called the United Arab Republic. You should remember that Syria and Egypt did merge into a single country for 10 years, Um, that there was an attempt at a kind of ecumenism um, in these nationalisms. Uh, So... Like, this all sounds pretty good, eh? Like, these are good ideas. They're developed by great intellectuals. They're propounded on the world stage majestically. at huge conferences where the delegates represent over half of the people in the world. Um, it's um, it's a, great, um, a great thing. Now, some of the reasons that um, this project failed to arise as an opponent of the West uh, or of the the duopoly. Um, In here, in the fact that during decolonization, uh, the great powers didn't really give up their, that because it wasn't mercantilism anymore, the people who were actually making money and exploiting these economies were not the imperial empire. They were not the European empires. They were the corporation's resident in those empires. And those corporations did not give up what they owned when the sponsoring empire left. And so this meant that money and distribution systems remained out of the hands of uh, people in these countries unless they engaged in economic nationalist acts of expropriation on a large scale, which were almost always punished with capital flight and boycotts and sanctions. So there's a way in which these states were kept down. Um, Also, these states needed capital and they needed arms. And the Soviet Union, the Soviet Bloc and the American Bloc were almost the sole sources of capital and arms. Uh, And so often, new states would come into being with a uh, third world or nationalist ideology, but in order to do basic short-term things, they would find themselves even more profoundly indebted to and beholden to um, either of the power blocks. But we also should blame some genuinely bad decisions. In particular, we wanna look at China's great leap forward. It's an example of how to do stuff uh, quite wrong. And I think when I, it's funny, I didn't fully understand the great leap forward until I was um, living in the US in 2011. And I read an article about the Tea Party movement and its economic theories. And, um, you know, there's an odd resemblance between some Tea Party doctrine and the Great Leap Forward. Because, of course, Tea Partyism is just like the Maoists, both highly pro-industrial and also in favor of villagization, right? They totally idealize the village. They wanna move the decision-making inside the village. They wanna run the institutions through the village. And they believe they're going to become a great industrial powerhouse. And then the author said, and of course, Mao found out what happens when you try to build a steel mill in your backyard. Um, Steel production went to shit because um, you need scale for it. You need an enormous steel plant. You can't, some things don't get smaller when you just try and shrink them. Governing bodies can do that, but steel production doesn't. You need the big electrical grid. You need the huge piles of coal. You need all kinds of stuff to operate at scale. And so, villagization programs, um, were often technological failures. Villagization that focused on agricultural production tended to hit production targets. Villagization that focused on industrial production tended to um, fare very, very, very poorly. Uh, There was a whole fake steel business in China in which citizens were forced to melt down their own pots and pans and pretend it was steel for when the government inspectors came along. Um, it, was, uh, it was a nightmare. So that was a big, so that was one of the ways villagization hobbled its own systems. The other, I'll take an example going back to even earlier, there was, um, so the Republicans uh, after uh, Abraham Lincoln died, um, we're really on the fence about whether to go ahead with that 40 acres and a mule plan. Um, not because, I mean, some Republicans were very sincere abolitionists and they wanted to see black people as yeoman farmers. Other Republicans were less sincere abolitionists, but they saw that as long as the Southern planters controlled these huge estates, their wealth would make them a dangerous economic power that could reseize national authority at any time turns out that was a pretty fucking rational worry so all, so there were two groups of republicans in the 1860s and 70s who wanted massive land reform wanted the land divided up and they held congressional hearings and interviewed some black farmers about what they would do with their 40 acres And there's some amazingly detailed testimony that the farmers come in with um, showing that these guys really know how to run an almost permacultural operation. Uh, They propose putting in an incredible diversity of crops. They they propose having a small number of chickens, a small number of pigs, integrating the pigs and chickens into this larger quasi-permacultural operation. And the big problem with these operations, the more testimony the Republicans heard, the more frightened they became. Because there was almost no tobacco on these plantations. There was almost no cotton on these plantations. They're completely focused on the well-being of their community. So in a place like Tanzania, villagization produced a bunch of good outcomes, like decentralizing the school system, pushed Tanzania's literacy rate way up there. It was a big advantage the country had for a long time. It was how effective, how much more not just um, literally literate, but um, civically literate their population was. But, villagization produced declines in exports. Uh, because the more control you gave people in villages to meet their needs, the more they met their needs. The better nourished they were, the easier it was for them to send their kids to school, fewer hours a day they had to work. People's lives got better, and the balance of trade and the balance of payments would go into a tailspin. So both failed villagization and successful villagization put states in terrible danger because their balance of trade would go off their currencies would fall and things like that. So although we have massive global buy-in on the part of the formerly colonized, um, the third world movement um, and the non-aligned movement are failures in seriously challenging the might of either of the superpowers and their friends, The movement that does successfully challenge them, that nearly brings them to their knees, that forces them to abandon John Maynard Keynes and embark on a completely different theory is OPEC. And that is, um, and much as the uh much as the organization of petroleum exporting countries did not have much of a political agenda it did not have much of a consensus right there were you know royal families there were uh religious dictators um there were There was Mexico. Mexico was a petroleum exporting country. Um, Venezuela, which was kind of an American client state, but both Mexico and Venezuela saw OPEC as a material way to get out from under the system that they had been stuck in. Why did OPEC suddenly become a material route for emancipation from these systems and to stare down? the most powerful nations on earth. Well, with the United rise of the United Nations system, the British Empire lost its oil-producing territories. It lost Iraq, uh, its big oil-producing territory. Its influence on Iran began to wobble after the United States had, had to help them pull off that coup so very quickly the british empire becomes a net petroleum importer much more worries and most of these countries that um, are part of the american bloc are part of that bloc because they were european empires that fell to america because they already were net petroleum importers france net petroleum importer italy net petroleum importer west germany etc cetera, etc cetera. This was all fine and good as long as the United States was a net petroleum exporter. But, we're not yet in the age of shale gas and all of this uh, dirty innovation. The United States rapidly becomes one of the world's biggest petroleum importers on Earth. They become highly dependent on the petrodollar and their ability to um, use institutions like the World Bank to maintain a decent oil price. But the OPEC states realized that um, by using very simple market mechanisms like production cuts, they didn't need to go after the US and its allies, they could just cut production and watch the price rise. And so OPEC began making these production cut agreements. Oil prices would rise and the balance of trade and the balance of payments would become more unfavorable, not just for the United States, but for NATO as a whole, for America's most powerful allies, Japan, all of these countries, We're paying more and more for oil. This began producing ugly economic feedback effects. And by 1974, of course, it had reached a crisis point. The gold standard currency system that had been developed was no longer sufficient to sustain the U.S. dollar at the level it was supposed to be because the US and Britain and these other countries, in order to maintain their very high levels of industrial employment, and their need to have their economies grow every year just to maintain the same employment level, meant that it wasn't just that they were paying more for petroleum, they were also using more petroleum all the time and further deepening their crisis. So. The production cuts happen, and of course, there are a number of different political reactions. Um, in the 1976 US election, um, the one of the reactions is represented in Jimmy Carter's election, and it remains a common reaction up to the present day. Well, we need to move to a technology where we're dominant again. Uh, the only way to succeed in a global empire game is to to have the form of energy and the energy technology that is the best. Therefore, we need to change the technology, we need to change the resource. Um, The Onion did a great, um, in their book, Our Dumb Century, did a great portrayal of Carter's attempt to get reelected in 1980. There's a picture of Carter and it says, let's talk better mileage and there's a picture of Ronald Reagan, and it says, kill the bastards. And then the the headline reads, which message will resonate with voters? Uh, So so one of the ways that, uh, so of course, there's the act of hostility towards the OPEC block, which I'll get to with Reagan in a bit. But there's a subtler area of consensus that we miss. So when we think about NATO, we know its enemy is the Warsaw Pact. Um, When we think about the United Nations, we now know its enemy was the Axis powers. Um, Would anybody care to guess the name of the organization that appeared in 1973 that stated that they were the enemies of OPEC and they were going to stop them. (sighs) RT?
1: I can't think of the name. Is it it the Wahhabists? No, no. That
0: predates that. That's not right.
2: Yeah, no, there there were Wahhabis in OPEC mysteriously getting along very well with Shiites back then uh, and with Christians, of course. Um, The organization was called the G6 it was the federation of the th- of the six economies that con- uh, consumed the most petroleum on earth so italy west germany japan the united states france and britain these were the g6 and what they does presume-
0: the stand for?
2: um uh the, uh, that's actually not a hundred percent clear. Um, <laughs> oh, they are, shit. um, it, it may have been, um, I mean, these were called the great economies of the world. Um, and so the G six emerged as articulating the needs of the, the biggest petroleum importers and they developed, um, So when we think of the gold standard being abandoned and the currencies being deregulated and currency markets becoming meta currency markets, where a currency is just how much you guess it's going to be worth at a point in the future that you can gamble on the money you're gambling with, on the money you're gambling with, turtles all the way down. This, these are the innovations of the G6. So, what they did was they agreed to remove foreign ownership controls in their own economies uh, uh, yeah so uh yeah will so I'll talk about how we go from six to seven it's a beautiful uh beautiful thing uh, anyway, so just answer group Renzo anyway uh yeah as far okay. i mean that's I've always heard that in. It's the same Wikipedia article for six or seven. Yeah, absolutely, as it should be. Uh, So um, anyway, the G6 realized that the big problem was not the flow, or the, the secondary problem was the flow of oil. The flow of oil was producing a flow of money out of their countries. And so the money needed to be recaptured by being put into their countries. And they looked at what OPEC countries were doing. And many OPEC countries were using their increased wealth to do things that rentier economies don't want to do but desperately need done. They were investing a lot of that money through their governments in infrastructure. And they were giving their citizens, their wealthy citizens, major incentives for investing in infrastructure. So huge tax credits for building factories within their countries major subsidies for the building of roads and railroads, things like that, anything to turn these economies around. And the G6 strategy was to offer higher returns on investment for less risk by rooting this money not through Arab economies, but through their stock exchanges. Stock and currency exchanges Became an, a mechanism for recapturing this money and repurposing it into the um, into these industrial economies. So things like foreign ownership boards uh, disappear, um, and uh, in their place we have all of these big incentives for foreign money to show up in stock exchanges. So. This was the first phase of the G6 plan. It by itself recaptured 70% of the money. 70% of the money ended up being rerouted out of the Arab world back into the stock exchanges of the six. Canada was invited to join because um, as uh, as a kind of insurance policy the next year, we were the only petroleum exporting country that refused to join OPEC and that was willing to, to deliberately undercut the OPEC pricing mechanism simply in order to please our British and American and French allies. So really from this second phase of our oil industry, the first phase of the Canadian oil industry is the 20s, and it's in response to Mexican nationalization and our willingness to let Americans own our oil industry when they were being kicked out of Mexico. Second phase of the Canadian oil industry is us being willing to take a hit on the value of our shitty oil. Um, And part of that is being invited into the G7 as like a fake great power. Even though lots of uh, countries were more industrially productive than us, we got into this club Uh, largely by not wanting to be in the other club. Uh, Now, that only takes you so far. Um, Now, of course, this does a bunch of other things, and it also has to be explicable in other terms. Many of these changes to our stock markets, our money creation systems, our money speculation systems um, were not explained as efforts to win a um, global uh, conflict against OPEC. They were explained as part of an exciting new economic doctrine called neoliberalism that we'll talk about next time that the Chicago school in economics was able to explain uh, what I talked about a few weeks ago, the tolerance effect of stimulus and um, Chicago school had all kinds of prescription, but these general practices of deregulation and market access fitted into the Chicago school that was now part of a political movement. Um, Your first world leader who's part of that movement is Gerald Ford in 74. He's the first one to bring in Chicago school economists to replace Keynesians. And then of course, we see the movement's first electoral victory with Margaret Thatcher. And then it's next major electoral victory with Ronald Reagan, uh, putting forward these very different ideas um, that are about taking capitalism back to its first principles in a sense, right? Limited public ownership, limited regulation, freedom of choice. All of these things seem consistent because the other thing that this movement is focused on is winning the Cold War, winning it decisively and winning it soon. And again, we have to credit that these neoliberals are not fools. It's not all the laughter curve at the beginning. It's not all just bullshit to justify plunder the neoliberals also have and also have a foreign policy theory that will break the power of OPEC and then break the power of the Soviet Union and not primarily militarily but through economics so or rather by fusing military policy and economic policy in crucial ways now Many people were very up in arms about how, um, you know, uh, the Russians were involved in uh, Donald Trump's victory, which no, no doubt they were. Um, but it was really interesting seeing the historical amnesia and nobody remembering the 1980 election. Because let's be clear, one of the ways that Reagan rose to power was the oil wealth and intelligence connections of his vice presidential candidate, George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush was part of a larger community of petro-millionaires who had close ties all through the Arab world from doing business there and from playing both sides in the petropolitics game of having your Your kids go together with the Saudi royal family's kids on holidays, that sort of thing. Um, What these guys realized, of course, was that tremendous levels of solidarity were necessary to sustain OPEC. And that the power of OPEC could be broken if one could concur, if one could manipulate the states into fighting each other. So, one of the things that the Reagan campaign has from the very beginning. Um, are close relations with both Iraq and Iran. Now, Iraq and Iran, um, now Iran has, is just in the process of undergoing a revolution in 1979. And it's, and it's not clear who's gonna win the revolution. Like, there are some structural factors that showed <clears throat> that these were the most likely victors, but we have to remember that the feminist movement and the student movement hugely stood behind. Um, the Iranian Revolution, as did socialists in Iran, Um, broadly supported revolution. Now, the Iranian Revolution was based on this renewed kind of democratic theocracy, this new kind of managed democracy where clerics would be restored to their traditional place in society, Voters would be restored to their traditional place in society, and there'd be this hybrid system of democratic religious governance. The ideology of Iraq was the precise opposite; it was the ideology of Baathism, which is the um, uh, which is the belief in um, limiting democracy precisely because it will empower Islamists. Uh, so you had an avowedly secularist government originally in, the, in Saddam Hussein's state. And Saddam Hussein had maintained the best relations with the United States of any of the Middle Eastern OPEC powers and good personal relations with George H.W. Bush. Uh, during 1979, the U.S. government uh, encouraged the uh, Iranian revolutionaries to take Americans hostage. And then on three separate occasions, the Reagan campaign paid the Khomeinists not to release the hostages because Jimmy Carter had got them out. On three separate occasions, Carter cut a deal and the Reagan campaign paid to have people continue to be hostages and uh, to have some of them murdered. Um, and that—that's—that's that's 1980, you know. It's like, why are we so concerned about the Russians hacking Facebook, when the most celebrated American president of the modern era got into power specifically by colluding with a foreign power to endanger Americans? Well. Of course, this remained the style of the Reagan administration. We think of the Iran-Contra affair as some sort of exception. But one of the reasons the Reagan administration kept getting elected um, was that it got results by doing these things. Reagan and Bush were able to convince Iran and Iraq by going to go to war and were able to make sure that that war continued by selling weapons to both sides and extending loans so that, that, so that both sides had the money to do that. Now, of course, in order to maintain this war, eventually something had to give. And what ended up having to give was uh, the OPEC production quotas both Iraq and Iran pulled out of their OPEC production quotas and began selling oil on the sly, additional oil. That brought the price down. That produced disunity within OPEC, which caused more countries to pull out of the production quotas. And so as time went on, the uh, uh, OPEC solidarity was broken primarily through the, orig- the US uh, foreign policy establishment's success in getting the Khomeinians and the Baathists into a protracted war and making sure that war was successfully supplied with arms. Um, so, what we can see then in the Cold War period is. Um, there are a lot of apparent challenges to American hegemony, but we have to remember that um, many of those challenges were part of the structure of the original hegemony, that being in the form of the Cold War competition with the USSR, and the others were not primarily ideological in character. They were what we—I think—we can term OPEC's challenge opportunistic, rather than ideological. Certainly, many of the countries in OPEC attempted to pursue the collective good of their citizens or their residents. But at the end of the day, the first period of the Cold War is one of relative balance, and the second period we see that most of the colonies have been snapped up the agreement to divide up these old imperial territories with the Soviet Union is of declining utility. It's just less useful to the West as time goes on. Now, there's an added bonus in all this, which is the terrible economic management of Leonid Brezhnev had caused the Soviet Union to become the biggest exporter of petroleum outside of OPEC the Soviet Union had become reliant on OPEC's production limitations in order to make money off its own oil. And so one of the reasons we see the Reagan administration appearing to run the tables and bring the whole thing down so fast is that due to internal Soviet decisions, the Soviet Union's success had become tied to the success of OPEC. Uh, okay. So I think, um, that's it for today. Any questions or comments? Okay. I see everybody's yes. still on. Oh, Renzo. I do. Oh, go Re- go ahead,
1: <laughs> um, I was going to say, I thinking about the, like, the fact that Canada joined OPEC, or, or sorry, the G7 in, in the 70s rather than OPEC, you know, you talk about the external factors, but I'm sure that Pierre Trudeau did not want to give the Western provinces the amount of power that they would have had by joining OPEC. Like, can you imagine how much that would have changed the balance of power within Canada and within the sort of, you know, Eastern Liberal Compact? Like, it's it's not surprising at all if that happened.
2: Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, that's what's interesting about Justin Trudeau's regime, right? Is it's this effort by the Laurentian elite to incorporate the oil elites of the West and the oil elites of the West refusing to accept that incorporation. Yeah. And I think that's one of the other things one would have seen in the 70s. Remember that um, uh, one of the biggest uh, organizations in English Canada in the 70s was APAC. the alliance for the preservation of english in canada um and of course they believed that um uh we were all going to be forced to learn french um that bilingualism in fact banned english yes again canadian antecedents in horrible american movements of the present yes the anti-bilingual movements of america in the 21st century owe a lot to apac um But APEC, but Trudeau had also converted to the metric system, and APEC, part of their doctrine was that uh, metric caused communism. So we were going to become homosexual French communists um, because of the metric and the bilingualism. And of course, so Trudeau is, like, one can imagine a Peter Lougheed character being dealt in, but... It's very difficult to imagine the West, as it then understood its intractable opposition to Trudeau, did they have the same problem as they're having with the pipeline now? Would these people have accepted the gift, or would they have simply incorporated Arabs into their conspiracy theory?